everyone. Welcome to the Introduction to Clinical Research podcast. My name is Debbie and I use she, her pronouns. I work in clinical research and I have decided to explain it to my friend Elise. Say hello, Elise. Hello, Elise. Uh, hello, my name is Elise. My pronouns are she, her, hers, and I don't work in clinical research, so I'm here to be explained to Beautiful. We are here to pull the curtain back on medical research, so hopefully everyone listening feels a little bit more informed, understands the outcomes of research, and maybe trusted a little bit. Um, there's a lot we can discuss, so we're going to take it bit by bit. And today we're talking about one of my favourite topics, because um, I'm not cool. I'm fine with that. We're talking about <laughs> documentation, also known as paperwork or filing or whatever you want to call it. And this... This links back to my very first job out of university in my current profession. I was what's called a clinical trials administrator, which meant I was a I was a, a paper magnet. I, I filed papers. I sent documents to people. I re- received signatures back. That was what I did. And I did that for like 18 months, which was not fun. But it did give me a great respect for documentation and how important it is. I mentioned in the last episode how important the protocol, as an example, was as an essential document, you know, vital to the team being able to successfully conduct the study. But in general, all of the paperwork, all of the documentation across the study is really important. Um, Nobody listening can, but I can see Elise's face (laughs) and she is repressing an eye roll adequately. No, that is not true. I am uh, also a fan of documentation. I'm also not cool, but hey, I work for a the government so <laughs> the fact i the amount of documentation i want versus what exists is actually mm. there's a there's a uh, a gap between a those things yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um the amount that i want to be able to have other people hand me like a procedural document or you know notes on the meeting that they had last month with that one other <laughs> entity and then they just can't what are the action <laughs> items where are the decision points yeah. what's the rationale for this yeah oh, we got um mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. okay so um, I'm glad that Elise is in the same boat as me of liking paperwork <laughs> because not everybody does. But in science, as in many things, it's really important, right? Honesty and truthfulness are the bedrock principles of scientific research and documentation helps prove what's been done, right? It's like an evidence trail in court. We want people to be able to trust the conduct and outcomes of research. And so it's really important that we are transparent and we show our workings, Right. When you're doing a math sum at school, I don't know whether this is the same in the US as it is in the UK, but you, you have to you can't just have the equation and then put the answer as four or whatever. You have to show your workings. And it's the same with scientific research. What this means in practical terms is when you're doing a clinical study, although some of it has to be done privately or in a masked or blinded way to protect patient confidentiality and to protect the scientific validity of the study, right? We talked about the importance of of masking or blinding to reduce bias. Um, The steps along the road are documented and the documentation is so important that there's a whole section of ICHGCP revision two dedicated to it, section eight, right? ICHGCP is the International (laughs) Council, (laughs) the harmonization good clinical practice with the words that start with i and c before that council on harmonization it's not Uh international it is it is oh i thought i said that yeah you did and you said no i was wrong (laughs) okay i thought you said international and then you started saying council and i thought you were going to say conference and i instantaneously yeah. went because i'm so i'm so used to mm-hmm. like i use in in a recent past life i used to be a trainer and people mm-hmm. would always be like it's the international conference on harmonization I'd be like no it no, isn't, it isn't. <laughs> but then you well, forgot how actually, perfect i am <laughs> exactly so i'm leaving that's me out of a job because i was All right. wrong debbie's gone and now i'm going to read the rest of her <laughs> script <laughs> Uh, best of luck, Elise. No, yes, <laughs> you are absolutely correct. International Council uh, on Harmonization <laughs> Guidelines for Good Clinical Practice. Well done. Thanks. I'm mortified. Good. <clears throat> <laughs> so, the importance of documentation, as I mentioned before, it's like the evidence, right? So if we're pretending like we're Hercule Poirot or Sherlock Holmes Who? or... Um, <laughs> I'm leaving. It's too hot for this. I'm recording this in the middle of a very minor heat wave in the UK. 
which means it's September and it's above 15 degrees Celsius and I'm melting and Elise is being sassy and I have no <laughs> oh, time I don't, for it, frankly. I don't know who that character is. You don't, don't know who Hercule Poirot is? No. Elise. I'm sorry. Okay, have you heard of the author Agatha Christie? Oh, oh, okay, I know who this is. It's just been a long, long, long time since I've read Agatha Christie, like eighth grade English class long time i can't believe you read agatha christie at school we just do it for fun (laughs) but that's because she's one of ours anyway yes uh or other super cool detectives who i've just realized the ones that i've listed and the ones in my notes are all white and male because (laughs) i think that's all of the yeah i don't i don't know any others (laughs) Mm -mm. maybe it's because marginalized people don't often want to be cops anyway that's a different conversation What? So what we need to do... It's too hot for this. What we need to do in order to um, prove that the research that we've done was done properly, that the research can be trusted, that the outcomes are reliable, that the patients were kept safe, that the data has been handled in a confidential way. All of these points, right? We need evidence. We can't just say, oh, yeah, I did it because I'm a cool dude. No. Unless you're Sherlock Holmes or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But Sherlock Holmes, as played by Benedict Cumberbatch, mm-hmm. not Robert Downey Jr. Now, there's nothing think... wrong with Robert Downey Jr., but RDJ's... he's too American. Oh, I was going to say, I don't think RDJ's uh, Sherlock Holmes was documenting anything. No, no, he wasn't. <laughs> no, he was just falling in love with Jude Law. Good for him. That was it. Each to their own. <laughs> uh, We're off it's... the rails today. <laughs> there are no rails. It's too hot. Did I mention that? Anyway, so the documentation of the clinical trial is there to prove all of those things that I listed before. It's evidence of what was done, how it was done, who did it. That's important because we only want trained, qualified, proper people to be doing research. Like, I can't go and do surgery on someone. I'm not qualified. I can't fly a plane. Um, and the results that they got from from doing all of the research. It's, it's the whole story from beginning to end. Okay? Yes. So the documents serve a few purposes. They make sure that other people can look and see how the study was done. Um, They help the study run properly so that the team at the hospital and the team at the sponsor company and everybody involved is following the same rules or guidelines. Right, It's like having an instruction manual or a recipe. You're all doing the same thing. You all have the same expectations. There's no confusion. And the outcome of the research is also documented, providing the evidence to justify the marketing authorization or expansion to the label or whatever other action it's that we're going to do maybe for the next study that we want to run okay so i care that clinical trials are properly documented and so should everybody so that we can be confident that these purposes i.e the transparency of research we know how it was done and what the results were we can trust the we can trust the outcome because it's evidence-based and that the study has been run properly because people have the instructions they need to do that that matters to all of us right the documents allow other people to go in and look at what was done in order to reconstruct it so this is perhaps a niche reference in the uk we have a television program called crime watch or i don't know if it's even still on i don't watch television that much anymore um and it was basically would talk about crime in the uk and sometimes they would do literal reconstructions of events in order to raise awareness and to try and prompt people to maybe give witness statements if they'd seen something or or knew something And that's exactly what we're talking about here is reconstructing how a study was done in order to better understand it, for example, to evaluate it or um, to check that nothing was missed. Right. That there were no no risks or occurrences that uh, that we missed that that should be reviewed. So do other people actually redo these studies sometimes or is it just kind of like in in my mind palace as I am now Sherlock Holmes? Um, okay. In my mind, this is palace. great casting, by Thank the way. Yeah, Elisa be... <laughs> Sherlock Holmes. I'm here for it. Yeah. Can I be um, Doctor Watson? Are we going to fall in love? Uh, are we not already? Okay. Good point. Well, that's true. <laughs> that's true to their casting too. So to their characters too. So we're we're fine. Great. Sorry. Okay. So in this world where you're my psychic <laughs> and I'm a heroin uh, addicted. Um, Detective. Yeah, that's the word. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, 
I have a mind palace and I also have a lab. When you say reconstruct a study, am I reconstructing it in my mind palace because I can read the documents and understand the steps in my mind palace? Or am I actually doing the study again? Great question. So in this example, when we're talking about documentation and reconstructions, it's in your mind palace. Okay. But in scientific research, there's also this concept of reproducibility, Mm -hmm. which is where people like Dr. Andrew Wakefield fall down because I let's say I run a study and I'm like oh my goodness did you know um standing on one leg for 10 minutes a day cures whatever disease you may have psoriasis for example right and I'm like and I've got these five patients and proven job done you can try to reproduce that using maybe the same protocol or something very similar and, and by that protocol, that's the menu that you're following, right? The 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 recipe, sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can see if your results are the same. And that's really important because let's say I cook a recipe and you cook a recipe. They should come out more or less the same. If we've used the same ingredients, the same process, the same method, the same tools, oven, heat, yes. etc. It should be more or less the same, right? For scientific research, that should also hold true i.e. if I run a study a certain way and you run a study a certain way, if the inputs are the same, the output should be the same. Right. Inputs process the same, the output should be the same. So that is reproducibility, which is something that is often looked at. When studies are published in scientific journals or, or other places that they may be published, other researchers might think, oh, interesting. I think there might be a weakness in this research. I'm going to see if I can reproduce it. Okay. Um, and, and that's a really good way of of finding weak spots in research or finding poorly conducted research is the the lack of reproducibility. Yeah. I just think about how expensive these studies are (laughs) and how unlikely anybody is to actually recreate a study that's already been done, even if they have doubts. Sure. But what you do see in research, and, and we know this from having talked about the phases, right? Is the drug goes through phase one, phase two, phase three, and so, and so, and so, and so. And Part of that is proving reproducibility of the effect that we saw at the beginning or of a predicted effect, Okay. right? So if we do a phase one study and we see it doesn't cause these terrible reactions, we expect that result to be reproduced through the rest of the the phase studies that we may run, right? A drug isn't approved off one study, it's approved off multiples. A minimum of three, phase one, phase two, phase three, but often a few more than that, right? And you are looking for reproducibility and predictability gotcha. across those studies. There's always going to be variation because the population of patients is changing. We know that. That's the variable. And we're doing that very deliberately. But some of that should be reproducible. And then if the drug goes out on the market, we're still looking at the reproducibility of the results. Because, OK, the variables change and the patient population is maybe now a bit wider. But we're still looking to see... Is the drug behaving in the predicted way that we wanted? Are the patients having the response that we wanted them to have in more or less the same kind of bandwidth of positive to negatives? The bell curve, does it more or less look the same? That's reproducibility. Not always, you're right, because it would be cost prohibitive, is a researcher going to go and repeat exactly the same study? But there are so many other bits of, of the process where we are looking at reproducibility. And often when I when I talked about like, oh, I'm going to look at a, a study that's been published in a scientific journal, and I'm going to go and repeat that. It's probably going to be me going and looking at some data that is publicly available and me running the numbers, doing some statistical analysis or something like that. It's not going to be me going out and recruiting 1500 patients and dosing them for a year because we can't afford that. But the proof of the pudding this is an idiom. I don't know if it translates. The proof we, of the pudding is in that. the eating. Do you have that? Yes, oh, we do God. use that. You know when you start talking and you're like, I yeah. don't know <laughs> yes. if my friends in America yes. are going to get this one. Um, mm. It's funny because I think that this is one that has no, no like ba- touch line, like baseline of meaning for us. It's just like we say it and we know what it means, but there's no like pudding cooking and you know yes. that, that goes on in america yes. like people buy pudding they don't cook pudding right. here and i think pudding means something different yes okay interesting we can we can fall into the cake ravine another time i think perhaps <laughs> but anyway the proof of the pudding with a drug is in the previous and future studies that have been conducted with it and its behavior once it's on the market 
And of course, when a drug is on the market, it will be exposed to more people. So there is a higher risk, right? If the research has been dodgy, but there are so many safety nets between me, a scientist doing a research study and the drug being out on the market and widely available to any human being that like doctors look at it and it's published in a, in a, in a journal that people will be looking at the results and going, oh, hang on, you've actually only done it in four people and government regulators look at it, you know? But even if we'd managed to fox all of those people, once the once the drug is out in the wild, once the pudding is out of the oven and we're eating it, if it's rubbish, you're going to know about it because mm-hmm. you'll be eating a pudding and going, this is awful. <laughs> Mary Berry would not be impressed. <laughs> you won't know who Mary Berry nope, is. But Did you? Okay. No, it's just I'm laughing because puddings in ovens it's just like i i just americans across the across the nation just went across america yeah yeah what yeah but everybody in everybody in the rest of the world i know outside of america probably I know. Got it because yeah. like we love a hot pudding oh well, i've seen a christmas carol i've seen the pudding come out of the oven <laughs> yeah yeah yep anyway <laughs> okay <laughs> so 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 the documents and the, and for, for every clinical study that I've worked on initially in my first job a thousand years ago now, 2007, most things were in paper, like literally hard copy paper files in an office behind a lock and key in a fireproof cabinet. Right. Um, and there were folders upon folders upon folders of study conduct. Right. Um, now, of course, a lot of things are digital because welcome to the future. But the, the whole point of those documents, whether they're hard copy or whether they're electronic, are there to allow other people to, to look at what went on and understand what happened, how it happened, who did it, what were the results. So did the researchers follow the recipe? Did they follow the protocol? Did they do the right assessments at the right time to each of the patients? Did they get the right data? Did they put it in the system properly? Um, were the patients consented onto the study voluntarily and in the proper way this is just a side note but we're just a lot of this podcast seems to be about language but the idea of were they consented right this passive voice construction of they have been consented into the study (laughs) it's just like Uh uh i don't know it's like did they consent to do the study voluntarily yeah. Versus yeah, were okay. they consented? Did they <laughs> it's give, like a, yeah, okay. It's like were they Mirandais? Like were they read their Miranda rights <laughs> when they were arrested? <laughs> yeah. Who is Miranda and why does she get so many rights? <laughs> um yes, I, I understand that. It's because in a clinical study, there is a process by which informed consent is collected from patients, or given by patients, I should say. Mm-hmm. Because it is voluntary, right? So The informed consent process requires the patient to be given as much information about the study as they need to be able to understand what's going to happen to them, to understand the risks and the potential benefits and and a whole bunch of other things, and to choose to participate. And there's literally documentation where the, the doctor should write down the process. Like, today, Tuesday, I gave the consent form to the patient. I sent them home to read it. They're coming back on Thursday. They came back on Thursday. They had 1,400 questions for me. I answered their questions. We talked about other treatment options available. We discussed the duration of the study and the, you know, the, the fact that I had to come back every month and all of this. And they said they wanted to talk to their partner about it. So they went home. They're going to come back Monday. They came back Monday. They had a few more questions, answered the questions. Um, they, they do want to participate. So we signed the form together and that form is signed and filed and the that whole narrative of they came in tuesday thursday whatever days it was that i said is in the patient's notes in their medical notes the story is there so that we can see that they were read their rights and they chose to participate they were consented they gave informed consent Mm -hmm. okay we're also looking at the documentation to make sure that the safety events side effects adverse events right if the patient got a rash or a headache or nausea um were all of those kind of things properly reported treated were there treatments documented right because sometimes if there's a an unexpected drug drug reaction it's important that we know what other medicines the patient's taking um was the right data collected to allow the statistical analysis to be done so if we have an end point and we are measuring the blood glucose level of the patient at certain time points did we take the blood samples did we run the tests to get those levels properly and properly includes at the right time point from the right patient the right volume into the right vial 
but also things like testing it on a calibrated machine that gives a reliable result. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. So it's documentation, and you, you can't see me, friends, but I'm doing air quotes at least aggressively. <laughs> um, documentation also includes like the calibration certificates for the equipment mm -hmm. in use during the study, whether that's like an ECG machine or a weighing scale or a laboratory centrifuge or analyzer. And we also collect things like the laboratory certifications to prove that the lab does things properly, right? So it's, it's not just about the story of what was done to the patient. It's all of the supporting stuff around that to prove, to demonstrate the quality of the research, right? Did the people that were doing the stuff, whether that's the doctor talking to the patient or the phlebotomist taking the blood sample or the lab tech running it or the radiologist, whomever, are they appropriately trained and qualified to do their, their job? But are they also trained on this study so that they do the stuff for this study properly, right? Do they have the relevant licenses in place? Do, do they have the relevant insurances in place if necessary? Okay. All of that has to be documented so that whatever outcome we see, whether the patient got better, stayed the same or got worse, is provable based on data and evidence. And therefore, if I as an outsider go in and look at it, I can see transparently the full story from A to Z, Z. See how good I am at translating? Yeah. Um, <laughs> tap tap so that So that we can... We can see what's going on. Top notch. Lovely. Top notch. Um, oh, is that, so that, is that an Americanism? Is that a... <laughs> no, top notch okay. is certainly not. That's ours. <laughs> you can't have that. <laughs> Just like tea. Just like tea. <laughs> tea. Yeah. Herbal infusions. Yeah, we, we definitely didn't invent that. We stole that as well. But the number of British people who think that like tea is central to the British identity. It's like, oh, okay, yeah. yeah, but we stole it. You, yeah. Like our national dish, um, or sorry, the most popular dish in the UK is chicken tikka masala, mm -hmm. which is a type of curry. It's yeah. delicious. Don't get me wrong. Love From curry. India. But, <laughs> but yeah, we stole well, that. Well, kind of. And, uh, and the koh and a whole bunch of other stuff as well. Yeah, tea anyway. from China and, you know... But yeah, yeah, yeah. everything that the British do, they invent. Never forget. Uh, that, is, that is our national identity, yep. yeah. Mm -hmm. And we're amazing for having done that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. Did you know we won World War II single-handedly? It's just us. <laughs> oh. Just wow. us. That's not, that's not how I learned it. <laughs> no. I don't think it's... No. I don't, I don't think it's how many people learned I think, it. But I think, actually, I learned it that we won World War II all by ourselves. It was going to shit until the U.S. joined is how we learned it. Which I don't think is incorrect. Yeah. But do you know who I think... <laughs> but I imagine the same as if you go to Russia, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. The history there will be yeah. we won World War yeah, II yeah. all by ourselves because the Germans came and invaded. Like, <laughs> well, yeah, fair enough. Isn't there a... Oh, gosh. Um... Is it Susie Ezard Izzard now? Uh, bit on oh yeah on mm -hmm. like the the Germans going to Russia. It's a good idea. It's a good idea. Yeah, she's hilarious. She's so yes. I love that bit. Okay. Yes. Anyway, let's not fall into um, let's not get any further off the rails than we've already been. It's, okay. It's too late for this episode. Yeah. So so. The study team use a lot of the documents to make sure that they know what they're meant to be doing and to prove what they've done, right? But it's not just the study team, the people in the office who kind of organise it and run it and finance it and blah, 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 file all the documents like I used to, but also the hospital staff, right, who know what they're doing. There are also other people who are going to look at those documents. What's really important that I haven't talked about yet is which documents are where, okay? Um, and I think... I think I want to talk about that first because of the the potential for confusion around patient confidentiality, right? Your personal medical data and where it ends up. Mm -hmm. So here's something super cool with heavy sarcasm. <laughs> some some document. I just don't think anyone else is as keen about paperwork as I am. Here, okay, I know this off, this is off the rails, but I feel like you need to know this <laughs> okay. for context at least. Okay. When I was a kid, mm -hmm. I used to go to our local post office. And on the wall, they had one of those like pigeonhole filing things, and they had different copies of different forms. Like, this is the form you yes. fill out to get a uh -huh. passport. Yes, we have this those. is your tax return, like whatever it mm -hmm. was. Yeah, yeah. And I, as a child, used to go in and take the forms out, like take one of each form yes. and go home and fill out the forms, <laughs> doing my little printing in the boxes. 
fabulous. Um, I know a child, this is not me as a child, but I know a child who um, had told her parents that she thinks her teacher was uh, favoring the boys in the class. And her uh-huh. her parents, who are academics, were like, well, you can't just make claims. You have to back things up with evidence. So she took this oh as a reason to start taking copious field notes and then present them to her teacher in third grade. I love I love how old is third grade? Oh, um like eight? Yeah, not eight, nine. Amazing. Yeah. What a hero. What a hero. I hope that, that that child goes on to become a scientist because that yeah. is or or like something in that bent and they're encouraged to do that because that's incredible. Yeah. Good for them. Anyway, so uh, I love this stuff, <laughs> but not everybody does. Okay. Some of the documents will be held at the sponsor company. So remember, we talked about the sponsor company. They are the ones who kind of manage and finance and oversee the study. Usually a pharmaceutical or biotech company or a kind of academic institution, like a a charity or a university. They're the sponsor. And they will hold a lot of the documents because they will write the protocol. They'll write the investigator's brochure. um, They'll collect copies of insurances and calibration certificates and qualifications doctors medical licenses all of that big big stuff they will have and they keep that in what's called the trial master file tmf for short and that they hold in their office wherever that may be some of the stuff that's in the trial master file like for example the doctor's medical license will also be in the documentation kept at that specific site so sometimes in a study you can have more than one hospital more than one site You always will have at least one, but you can have more than one, particularly Mm -hmm. if you're talking about a phase three multinational big study. You might have 100 sites. Yep. Each site will also have their own files, physical, electronic or both, with documents in. So they'll have a copy of the protocol so they can all follow the same recipe. They'll have a copy of the investigator's brochure so they have the same safety info. They will have the doctor's medical licenses, etc. for their specific site only in what's called the investigator site file or ISF. The TMF will contain all of the documents for like all of the sites so a medical license from each site, for example, but the site will only contain their own stuff. Okay. Cool. That makes sense. In addition, but separate to, kind of under the umbrella of the ISF, if you imagine the ISF is literally like hard copy files, right? Ring binders. Separate, but part of that is also the patient's notes. And obviously in in this day and age, more and more places are getting like electronic medical records. Mm -hmm. But back in the day, it used to be like literally paper and pen doctor writing stuff down. And many places that's still the case, right? Now, because of patient confidentiality, those patient notes cannot be removed from the site. So in many situations, like with the medical license, there's a copy of it at the site, there's a copy of it at the sponsor. Mm-hmm. And the TMF and the ISF, trial master file at the sponsor and the investigator site file, often mirror each other. Right. So there's some some similarities or, 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 or copies, basically, between the two. But for the patient's medical notes, that is their private medical information which has their name on it and, mm-hmm. and a whole bunch of other uh, stuff that is not taken out of the site for data protection reasons. And, and in the US, you have HIPAA, obviously, um, which covers what can go where. Yes. Right. So that's that information stays at the site only. And any information that the sponsor has in their database, because they will collect data about the patient, is anonymized. Each patient is given a unique identifier, a number, and that number is used to refer to the patient rather than their name. And in the investigator site file, there will be a log that has Joan Smith, patient number one. Like a key. Debbie, patient number two. Exactly like that. So if you need to de-anonymize the data for whatever reason, you can do it. Um, but the sponsor don't have access to that. They can They can get it only through the site. Okay, so if they say, we've looked at this data and there's a really concerning trend for patient one, their blood pressure is going up and up and up and up and up, right? We've seen that in the data. Mm-hmm. You need to tell them what's going on. That goes through the site because the site are the only people who know who that patient is. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. So really valid concerns in the modern era about data protection and who's got access to what. Um, but one of the other key things about the documentation is they're not... They're not just left like out on a desk out at the front of the hospital for anybody to look at. They are confidential for patients, but they're also commercially confidential for sponsors. So they're kept 
under lock and key and protected and only accessible by people who are working on the study, trained on the study. So now that we've talked about what's filed and where, I think the reason that we got onto this because I started talking about who has access to the documents, right? So the study team at the hospital, the doctors, the nurses, etc., that are running it, they have access to it. The people that are running the study from the sponsor, they will have access to it, okay? But also, in order to evaluate if the study was conducted properly, i.e. per the protocol, per ICHGCP, and per the rules, the laws, the guidelines, all the things we talked about previously, there are people called auditors and inspectors that also can be given access to these documents. Okay. Inspectors are employed by the government regulator. So your FDA has inspectors, MHRA in the UK has inspectors, etc., so they will go out to sponsor offices, to hospital sites, to evaluate conduct of studies. And they do that by interviewing people and by looking at the evidence, the documentary record of what's been done. OK. And often they say they will often they will cross match what was said versus what was done. Is it the same? If someone says, oh, yeah, we always do it this way. And then they look at the documentation and go, well, does the documentation prove that? Right. Yes or no. Auditors aren't hired or employed by the government body. Auditors are usually hired by the sponsor to assess study conduct independently or as independent as they can be separately from the team running the study at the sponsor and at the clinical research site at the hospital, whatever it may be. So they're hired by the sponsor mm. and the sponsor pays for the research mm-hmm. and they pay, pay for the auditors. And I I get that they're independent of the teams, but like if their paycheck is coming from the same people who are motivated to have the team, could that not be a conflict of interest? Yeah, that is that is a really good question. And I I think we need a whole future episode on auditors and inspectors because there's a lot there's a lot to get into there about that potential conflict of interest. I I, I will say that is a valid concern. In a past life, I used to be an auditor. Mm-hmm. So I was I was a contract auditor. So what that meant was um the company I worked for it was a very small CRO contracted me out to other people for me to then go and assess their conduct and the audits that i did i went to the sponsor company's offices and i looked at their documents i went to the people that were contracted by the sponsor companies they're called clinical research organizations cro's i work for one of them now um so i'd go to them and see how they were doing things and i would go to other vendors like if there's an imaging company or a laboratory or whoever i'd go assess what they're up to and i go to clinical sites, hospitals, mm-hmm. etc. and assess what they were up to. And so, yes, my the company that paid my salary was paid by in certain situations the company that i was going to assess. But here's the thing. It behooves nobody for research to be of poor quality because of the safety nets that are in place. Like you can do a study and it be cutting corners and not following the law. And as soon as you submit that study to a government regulator, they're going to say, well, you can't use any of this data to justify marketing authorization. And actually, we're going to fine you however many thousands or millions of dollars or pounds or whatever the currency may be, because you've broken the law here, here and here. That's not in the pharmaceutical company's best interest. It is in the pharmaceutical company's best interest to do things properly so they can get the drug on the market. And often particularly in very large studies, there are lots of things going on and they cannot scrutinise every point. Mm -hmm. So in terms of auditing, often what happens is it's risk-based. So you go to the sites that have the most patients, for example, or you go to somewhere where there's been a report of maybe something a little bit dodgy going on. Like this hospital is in a town of a thousand people and they've recruited 500 patients with this rare disease red flag right yeah so so i think i think the other thing i think that's also important is everybody that i i've worked with in clinical research um integrity is really important because the people that i've worked with have been scientists that's not to say that there aren't bad people there are for sure and there are people that do the wrong thing through malpractice through mistake through ignorance or deliberately um but there are a number of safety nets in place to stop that happening. I also can't think of another model that's better because the real problem here is that we're worried about sponsors marking their own homework, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Which which is a valid concern because um, there are situations where we've seen 
for example, with aviation safety, right? If the if Boeing are manufacturing a plane and they are doing all their own safety tests and they are saying whether the safety tests are suitable or not, there's no third party looking at that and going, yeah, that's okay. Whereas in research, even if you did zero audits, which you can do, there's still going to be the government regulator mm-hmm. looking at what you've done at the end of the road. Mm-hmm. So in my experience, it's a valid concern and I'm not dismissing it at all, but in my experience, the reason that, that sponsors do audits is so that they don't get to the submission to the government and go... And then get fined a bunch. And, yes. And and hammered and have their data yes. thrown out. Yep. So, yeah, I think I, I, I think this, is, this, this warrants a further conversation about mm-hmm. um, auditors and inspectors because... As I said, I used to do it. Um, So I saw a lot of the good and the really bad of clinical practice. Um, But I'm I'm trying, Elise, I'm trying to keep us on the rails. Yes, please. All kinds of things make up the documents that go into the TMF, into the ISF, and that then later form part of the regulatory submission. So we've already talked about the protocol right the recipe the instruction manual but it also includes like the template informed consent form so the template informed consent form is the document that the patient is given to read to tell them everything they need to know about the study that facilitates that process right so go away read this 20 page document but then come back and ask questions and have a conversation with me and and so and so and so is what the doctor uh, should do in, in in that consent process but that that form that they're given to read there will also be i say will there should be there must be legally a a, a version of that signed by every patient that's enrolled in the study the approvals given by the ethics committee the regulatory authority for the protocol for the informed consent form right the contracts between each of the involved parties the insurances as i mentioned the certifications the qualifications the training records all of these different things form part of that story of the whole study interestingly it's also important to point out that these documents aren't static and by that i mean when you start planning your study you'll write a protocol and that will be version one of your protocol and then you might send it to some of the doctors that you want to be working with for example and they'll say ah have you considered such and such like actually if you ask patients to come in with this frequency they're not going to do it because we know our patients we work with them all the time or actually you could combine that visit and that visit if you did it in this way or there's this new certified questionnaire that's amazing that our patients that gives you really good data would you consider using that so you get feedback right and so the sponsor may consider incorporating some of those changes and making version two of the protocol then they may submit it to the regulators in a bunch of different countries and the regulators may give them comments or feedback and say actually don't do that don't do that don't do that they, in my experience regulator comments are often uh, uh, not as specific as that uh, they will kind of question the scientific validity of what you're up to or the, the the safety of what you're doing, whatever. But the end result is you may have to make changes to your protocol and then you end up with version three mm-hmm. of the protocol. And as you've been running your study for a year, you realise actually we need to extend the study for longer. We're going to add six months onto the back of it to get more data of the long-term safety of our product. Okay, so then you're on to version four and so on and so on and so on. And this is really normal. I worked on a study that had 12 versions of the protocol like within a year. That is not ideal because it's really hard to keep track of all those different versions, but it happens. Every version of each of those documents, right? The protocol, the investigator brochure, the investigator brochure has to be updated annually or should at least be reviewed annually. Um, informed consent form, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All of those documents have to go through the regulatory or ethics approval process. So not only do you have to have the document, you have to submit it and get it approved, which means you've got a letter to them, you've got a letter back from them, and then you have to give it to all of your sites and get them to implement it, which means all of the sites have to be trained on, for example, the new procedures in the protocol. You have to have training documentation for all of the people on the study. So this is why the TMF can be huge. Yeah. Like old ring binders... I worked on a study that had been running for for a couple of years back in the day and it was easily like 20 ring binders of documents. It's a lot. Wild. Yes. Yes. But that's because you have to prove every step of the way what's going on. 
here's the the draft of that protocol here's the review comments here's how we implemented the review comments here's the sign-off process here's us submitting it to that regulator here are their comments back here's us making changes to the protocol here's the resubmission here's the comments back here's the final version there it goes to the site they're trained on it we've got their training records there's them implementing it that's getting each patient to sign the new consent form because of the new protocol snowball 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 okay okay so the golden rule of gcp good clinical practice if it isn't documented it didn't happen pixar didn't happen exactly exactly (laughs) right you can't just say oh i'm um i'm actually a trained pilot you can't just say that you have to you have to have proof you have to have your training record and your hours and your logbook and all of this stuff to to demonstrate that you that you can safely do the thing right you can't just say oh i'm uh i'm married to dominic monaghan the actor for example right picture it didn't happen <laughs> picture it didn't happen right and there are no pictures of, of me getting married to him because we're not anyway <laughs> um but that golden rule is absolutely critical and when when i was an auditor and when i was a trainer I would often find myself repeating this mantra, right? Like, you'd ask the question of, oh, where's the such and such a document? Oh, but why do you need that? Pixar, it didn't happen. The expectation in clinical research, and this is, I firmly agree with this expectation, is that you write everything down. Nobody does that perfectly. But that's the goal, right? You don't have to rely on someone's memory or a guess or... Oh, what happened in this situation? You know, why why is that visit a day late? Oh, it's because the patient had a an active infection and we weren't allowed to do the procedure per the protocol section 4.2 until that day. So yes, according to the window, it's a day late, but that's what we should have done. And actually, here's an email that we sent to the medical monitor on the study, the, the doctor who kind of oversees things, to say, which should we do? Should the patient come in with their active infection or should we push the visit back a day? And the medical monitor said, push it a day. Mm -hmm. And we've recorded the protocol deviation here in the database so that the statistical analysis team can look at that and know that it was a it was a deviation and factor that in when they're doing their analyses. And if, if that's the question that you ask and that's the answer that you get. Amazing. Awesome. Super. Or you ask the question, hey, why is this visit a daylight? And they go, oh, I don't know. I'll have to ask Jenny. Mm-hmm. Okay. Go ask that, Jenny. Oh, Jenny's on on vacation mm-hmm. for two weeks. That resonates. That feels like what right. usually happens, <laughs> at least in yes government work. Yes, it is. It is. That is. I think that is a more realistic story, and I think a lot of that um, comes from under resourcing. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. It's not. It's not that um, the the folks working on the study don't want to do a good job. Mm-hmm. It's not that they don't want to write stuff down. It's that. They're on the phone to the patient and the patient's saying, oh, hey, I've got a chest infection. My last day of antibiotics is tomorrow. When should I come in for my visit? And the the person who's handling that situation will go and do all of the stuff and they'll sort it all out and manage it appropriately. But they may not write down the processes they're going because they're, they're too busy doing. Yes. Right. That also resonates. Right. Absolutely. But the expectation is still that there's there's a, a paper trail. Yes. Right. There's evidence of what they've done. So, OK, if they send the email to the medical monitor, that helps. That really helps. Because that shows that you've read the protocol and you understand that there are two possibly conflicting things and which takes precedent. Mm-hmm. And the sponsor knows about it, you know? And so the, the explanation around that can be documented kind of after the fact. Ideally, it should be documented at the time, but even if it's documented after the fact, it's helpful. Right. Because it explains something that at the moment only lives in someone's brain. And if that someone leaves or is on vacation or whatever, if I then as an auditor or an inspector come in and I'm trying to reconstruct the study... Why, why did this happen this way? I don't know. Cool. The other thing that's really important is how long the documents have to be kept for. Because it's not just, oh, my study's finished, burn everything. Mm-hmm. Obviously, or I say obviously, it's obvious to me, but then I've been doing this for a thousand years. Right. If I do my phase one study now, I may not be submitting those documents to the regulator for 10 years. And my drug is then going to be on the market for a number of years after that on the back of the evidence of this study that I've just done. So the expectation is that the documentation, the evidence is kept for a while. Now, (laughs) what the document retention period is depends where you are in the world, when your study started and what the law said at the time. Mm -hmm. So um, various different retention periods exist. Two years after the last marketing authorization for the study was granted, for example, is, is one of them. 15 years 
from study end, 25 years from study end. <laughs> Generally, now, most sponsors keep their documents indefinitely because they want to be able to prove what they did. Does the rule depend on like what the what was being studied or yeah. what is trying to treat or you know like if it's something if it's another blood pressure medication which is lower priority because we've got a lot of those on the market it goes after two years versus if it's like a really promising cancer treatment it stays for 25 usually the way that the, the rules oscillate or vary i should say is physically where you are and the class of the product. Mm -hmm. So if it's a device versus a drug, the retention period rules okay. may be different. But if it's a blood pressure medication versus a cancer drug, and they're both experimental, they're both new drugs, the same rules will apply. Mm -hmm. And the, the, gotcha. the difference is usually through time or geography, right? So um, mm -hmm. what's interesting is like the retention period in the 1990s was not so firmly set as it is now so if you want to go back mm -hmm. and reconstruct a study from the 90s those documents may not exist mm -hmm. but if you want to reconstruct a study from five years ago they should still mm -hmm. now the difficult thing about keeping documents indefinitely is paper is not a very robust medium it often um what's the word decays maybe breaks down yeah. ink fades mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. and so one of the one of the one of my favorite audits that I ever did was a series of audits looking at archive providers. So going to places where they keep documents and they're in like temperature and humidity controlled areas mm -hmm. with incredible fire protections because obviously this is a room of paper. This would just go up phoom, like that. Sure. Um, yeah. And pest control measures, and also they would give advice on how to prepare the documents for archive. So taking out all of the um, staples, paper clips, those little mm, kind mm -hmm. of tie things and take everything out of, I've just found a plastic wallet, like take everything out of plastic wallets because I don't know whether you know this. If you leave something in a plastic wallet long enough, the ink will lift off and sticks to yeah. the plastic, not the page. Sticks to the plastic. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. So, um, how the site or the sponsor prepares the documents for archiving can also determine the the longevity of those bits of paper, how long they last and are, and are usable, right? But now, of course, we have a whole different challenge with archiving, which is if everything's kept electronically, how do we guarantee that this floppy disk that has my study on from 20 years ago is still going to be accessible in 10 years' time? Yes. That kind of... Um, future-proofing of our backup mechanisms. Mm -hmm. Yes. And the, I think we often forget just how material even digital storage is because we think of digital yeah. storage as this thing that's all just like these waves yeah. in the air. Yes, the numbers going between satellites and computers and things, which, um, you know, there has to be servers. There. And, like, in your example of a floppy disk, like, just like a piece of paper decays... Uh, the plastic on a floppy disk or the metal, you know, ring inside or, you know, all of all of the components yeah, of a floppy yeah, yeah. disk can decay and become, even if you have the technology to plug it in and to, to read pull it, data off of it. Is it still yes. readable or has it been sat next is to a magnet? it readable? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, just the materialism of data storage for digital data is still a challenge a concern for long-term yeah archiving absolutely but it's so important because we need to be able to prove okay this drug has been on the market for a couple of years and actually we're seeing some red flags should we have picked up these red flags during that research process Mm -hmm. You know, where they're actually signs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and that is something that happens if if there are red flags that appear once a drug is on the market, or orange flags. You know, um, they will go back and look at what was done, what data they had. Can we learn lessons from this? Right? Can we stop this happening in the future? That's that's always the the attitude um, of of research is um, can we make this better? Can we improve this? Mm -hmm. So. I had in my notes that we could talk about good documentation practice, which is like good clinical practice, but for documents. But that is, you know what, that is an important, mm -hmm. an important topic to, to your friend, mm -hmm. Debbie. And so we're going to we're going to uh, kick that down the down the road because there's there's so much to get into about it. And one of my favorite acronyms. So I think I think good documentation practice we're, we're going to do another day because we can also talk about <laughs> when I started working in clinical research, like day one in 2007 the first two things i got taught were how to write the date 
and you would think at the age of 21 I knew how to write the date but I didn't and of course not. how to correct a mistake that I made in any of these documents because it's not as simple mm. as you just rub it out and write it again there's a whole process to it so we'll talk about that but we'll do that another day all right Elise okay Whew, we're back on the rails it seems <laughs> We managed at the end to find the rails. Yeah, yeah. did we? For for like a, for about fifteen minutes. <laughs> you know what? It sounds about right. It sounds about right. Uh, do you have any questions? Is there anything that you want to clarify, loop back to? Because I felt like a lot of that was just us chaotically careening through the mines, and now we've appeared out the other side. And do we remember what we did? It was uh, it was a Mario Kart style <laughs> ride through. It was Rainbow Road, and, a, and a, a few times yeah. we off the edge. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, no, I don't. I don't think any questions right now. I'm sure I'll think of things and text them to you over time. But mm-hmm. yeah, great, fantastic. Um, if you have any questions, of course you know where I am. Uh, we hope you enjoyed listening to our podcast. Our careening through the mario kart minds podcast if you have any questions or would like to get in touch with us you can email us at clinical.research.intro at gmail.com please do subscribe so you get the next episode automatically and of course please rate and review you can also check out the clinical research 101 instagram page at clinical.research.intro on instagram our website has episode transcripts available and other information too that's at intro to clinical Finally, a big thank you from us to our excellent, uh, incredible friend, Sam Winnie, for letting us use their beautiful, incredible music for our intro and outro. Whew. It's still hot here. That's all. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks and goodbye from me, Debbie. Say goodbye, Elise. Goodbye, Elise.